Well, good morning again. So glad you're here. Hey, friends, I'm tired. You tired? Yeah, yeah, I'm tired. Now, I'm one of those people that don't sleep well, particularly if I wake up in the middle of the night. Anyone like that? Where if you wake up in the middle of the night and your brain starts humming, right, and you think, "Uh uh-oh, how long is this going to last, right? How long is this going to take? My brother's one of those people that just, like, falls asleep instantaneously, I hate people like that. <laughs> if that's you, no offense, um, but my brother rubs that in. He just, he's one of those guys just like, I feel sleepy, and like within 30 seconds, he's out. That's not, that's not me. And when this happens, when I wake up in the middle of the night, and I think, and I think, and I try to relax, and I, I, you know, I'm tossing and turning and things like that, I do something that I know you're not supposed to do. I know it. I know you're not supposed to do this. I grab my phone. Right? And I know, I know, I know, I know. Right? The screen stimulates your brain. It keeps you up more. I get all that. But after a while, I just need something to distract me from my own thoughts. Right? The echo chamber in your own brain. So you grab it. So recently, fairly recently, at 3.14 a.m., I was on Facebook, bopping around, when I remembered someone who I hadn't thought about in a long time. It was one of those Facebook friends you have that you're not really friends anymore. They're, they're, they're out of town. They're somewhere else. And you don't, but you remember them. They don't come up on your, on your feed very often. So I thought, all right, I'll go check them out at 3.14 in the morning. Now, this is someone that we weren't, we never had a problem with each other, but it was just someone that we just, we never really had the right vibe, right? You know, those type of people. It's not like you, you have a problem with them. There was no uh, big rip-roaring fight or anything like that. We just, we never really saw eye to eye. And so I find that a lot of times when I'm, you know, on Facebook or doing something like checking someone out, you know, someone like this, you're not really going with a very good spirit, are you? You're kind of want to check them out to see what's going on, right? You want to say, what's, what's happening with this person over here, right? And so this is never good to do any time, much less in the middle of the night. But I clicked on their profile and I started scrolling through their news feed when I came to a post that was critical, not necessarily of me specifically, but something I'm very involved and active in. Now the details are not not needed, they're unnecessary, but I found the post, and of course the subsequent pile of comments after the post, to be unfair, misinformed, and inappropriate. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt misunderstood and the opinion swirling came from a place of ignorance? Oh, I was mad, friends. I was mad, 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 mad. I was angry. Good luck sleeping now, right? How long is this going to take? I was stewing from that. Have you had an experience like that? And then again, the echo chamber in your own brain for the next while just bounce judgments and uh, rebuttals and all these things over and over in your, in your head. I was abolishing the law. We'll talk about that in a second. Let's get a recap here of where we are in the series. We're looking at uh, what has been noted, uh, what has been called the Sermon on the Mount. Some say the greatest sermon 
ever told. When Jesus tells it, how can you argue with that? But it comes from Matthew 5 through 7. And we talked about the fact that Matthew as a whole comes from, uh, is written for a specific reason. There's a specific audience that Matthew has in mind when he's writing this entire book or in this entire letter. He's writing primarily to Jewish people who had accepted Jesus as Savior but needed reinforcement and how Jesus fulfilled their history. They had thousands and thousands of years of history in which God was their God and they were the people. And now that Jesus had come and now that Jesus had fulfilled that which was their history, they needed help understanding how this all made sense. And so as he wrote it, he wrote it with them in mind. He tells Jesus' story in a way that mirrors Israel's story. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. He tells Jesus' story intentionally in a way so that his audience would read that and go, oh, I've heard that before. Yeah, yeah, that's our story. That, oh, Jesus is actually walking in our shoes. Their story starts in Egypt, and God delivers them from slavery and brings them out towards a promised land. But on the way to that promised land, the rabbis teach that Israel was tempted three times as they crossed the Red Sea. They were tempted not to trust God. They were tempted, not to, they were tempted to test God. And they were tempted to turn from God. In Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 8 and in Deuteronomy 6, it tells us specifically the things that Israel was to learn as they went through those three temptations on their way to the promised land. But Israel largely fails in all three of these. In fact, after these three temptations, they reach Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up to a mountainside and comes down with tablets, comes down with God's summary of God's law in two tablets in his hand. And he finds that they're doing the exact same thing. They're not trusting and they're testing and they're turning. They're worshiping other gods. And so they are called, they are uh, condemned to wander the wilderness for 40 years. This is their story before they finally can enter the promised land. This is Matthew's audience. This is his history. This is their ancestry. This is their story. And then they hear Matthew's account of Jesus' story. And they find that in Matthew 4, 1 through 2, Jesus wanders the same wilderness as they did. For 40 days, he wanders too, almost like it's, he's telling, he's retelling the story of what's going on. And then next, in Matthew 4, 3 through 11, Jesus is tempted three times in the three very ways that Israel was. And in fact, he quotes the three very Deuteronomy texts that they were to learn from. But where Israel fails, Jesus is faithful. And then finally, we get here to the Sermon on the Mount. And we need to understand what the Sermon on the Mount is in its context. It's that Jesus then goes up on a mountainside, just like Moses did. But this time, he's going to provide the fulfillment of the law. Moses came and gave the law, and now Jesus comes, and he's going to give the fulfillment of the law. Now remember, we talked about that the law has sort of this bad rap to it. When we hear the word law, we think of things that are restrictive and preventative and closed off. But the law is not meant to close us off, but it's actually to open us up to a better way. The law is good, and we should cherish it. We have laws for our children, and it's not to hold them back. It's actually to help them flourish 
the rules we have, if they're good rules, the laws that we have as parents are actually meant to set our children up for success, to flourish. The law isn't restrictive. It opens us up to a better way. And so Jesus comes down or goes up on the mountain to give us the fulfillment, the understanding of that which we, the Israelites, had been learning for thousands of years. And so here in our passage this morning, he sets it up. He says this, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now a bit about these terms, because they're actually specific terms. Abolish the law and fulfill the law were specific Jewish idioms, specific Jewish sayings that were prevalent in that day that had a very clear understanding. An idiom is a saying that sounds like one thing, but actually means something else. And all languages have idioms, figures of speech, that don't make sense literally, but have a metaphorical understanding. We have them today. When we say something like, oh man, it's raining cats and dogs out there, right? We don't literally mean that pets are falling from the sky, right? We understand that. It's an idiom. We're saying one thing, but we're really communicating something else over here. If a person, if we wrote that in literature, and then a person 2,000 years from now were studying our culture and studying our history and came upon this saying, they go, what kind of land is this? Where animals are falling from the sky. No, no, no. It's an idiom. It's a saying. It meant something else. This is a saying in their world to abolish the law or to fulfill the law. In rabbinic literature, to abolish the law meant to interpret it incorrectly. It didn't mean to get rid of it or throw it away. It meant to interpret it incorrectly. So if one rabbi gave an interpretation of scripture that another rabbi disagreed with, he'd say, oh, no, no, no. Friend, friend, no, no. You've abolished the law. That's that's not what it says. Let me tell you. I'm going to tell you what it says. You're you're abolishing the law. Don't don't say that. It means to disrespect it. One cancels, and so literally it comes out of the idea that one cancels or destroys or abolishes the law when it's misunderstood. When you misunderstand the law, then you can't live it out properly, and therefore you get rid of it. You throw it out. You abolish it. So when Jesus says, I, I, haven't come to, I haven't come to abolish the law. You, you guys are going to accuse me of this quite often. I, I haven't come to abolish it. I haven't come to misinterpret it incorrectly. I've come to fulfill it. Now, fulfill it is also an idiom, and it means the exact opposite. Exact opposite. If to abolish the law means to interpret it incorrectly, to fulfill the law meant that you actually interpret it correctly so that you might live it out. So if a rabbi agreed with an interpretation of scripture, we go, oh, friend, bless you. You've fulfilled the law. You've gotten it right. You've understood what it means. Contrary to what some people think, Jesus did not come to do away with God's law. Remember, God's law is good. Not a jot or tittle, it says, if you are a good King James or not, not a single stroke of the pen disappears out of God's law because it's good. But I've come to fulfill it, to interpret it correctly. 
See, Jesus goes up on a mount just like Moses to bring us the best understanding of how to live this out well. How do we fulfill the law with our lives, understanding the directives God's give us and then living it out well in our life? And what we're going to find throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' interpretation of the law, his fulfillment of the law, how he would interpret it so that we might live it out correctly. And we will find that Jesus' interpretation emphasizes the importance of the right attitude of the heart. What Jesus is going to do, his interpretation, his fulfillment, will emphasize the importance of the right attitude of the heart. Or another way of saying it is that Jesus is going to stress the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. Jesus is going to emphasize the spirit of the law over the letter of the law. Let me explain that a little bit. Now, every rule, any rule you can think of, any rule, every law, actually has two levels to it. There's the letter of the law, and then there's the spirit of the law. We have a toddler named Rudy, and she is running all over the place now. And so my wife, Molly, and I, we have to set up new rules for her in this new free runaround state that she's in. Now, we have a trampoline in our backyard, and of course, she doesn't want to just jump in the boring old trampoline. We have a net around it, right? She wants to go out of the trampoline, but walk around the edge of the trampoline where the, where the, the netting is not, right? There's just something in kids that just want to do the thing that uh, is going to get them hurt. It is not what it's made for, right? But this is what she wants to do at two years old. She wants to walk around the edge of the netting. Now, of course, because it's springs and not very, you know, not very good footing, she's fallen off it a couple times. Now, it's in grass, so she's been okay. But we have established a new rule for our two-year-old, Rudy, don't go around the edge, thus says the Lord, right? That's it, right? That's the letter of the law. She's been given a letter of the law. But here's the thing. We don't really care if our kids go around the, the, the edge of the trampoline, right? There's nothing inherently wrong with it other than not being a bad example. Our older kids can run around that side all they want. We don't, we don't care, right? It's not, it's not the... The, the edge of the trampoline that's the problem. The letter of the law only points to the spirit of law, which is safety. That's what we care about. So there's the letter of the law. Don't go over the edge, but the spirit behind that law is we want you to be safe. We want you to, to, to live the best life you can, and that does not involve falling off of trampolines, right? So therefore, we give her a letter in order that she might keep the spirit of it. Does that make sense? Every law has two. The law and then the reason the law exists. The rule and the reason, the spirit of it, the reason why it is. It's layered with the rule and the reason behind the rule. Now, if you have kids, you, you, you definitely understand that because anytime you give a rule, what is the first question a kid will ask? Why? They want to get at the spirit of it. Oh, you gave me that rule. I hear the letter of the law. I get that. Why? Give me the spirit behind it. I want to understand what's the heart behind that. My son, Micah, the other night, it was just ready for bed. And of course, kids are always hungry, like right before you put them to bed, right? It's like they have a knack for that kind of thing, right? 
So I'm laying in bed. It's been a long day. I'm pretty tired. And he's got his pajamas on. We're literally just about to put him to bed. And he goes, Dad, can I have a snack? Right? He's got a little look on his face. Can I have a snack? And I said, no snack. No snack. Nope. We're going to bed. No snack. Oh, but Dad, why? No, I'm not doing it. Dad, come on. No, oh, please, please, please. Why, why, why? Right? Because he knew, hmm, I don't know if I really believe the spirit behind that law. What's going on? And he was right. The, the spirit of that law was just simply, I don't want to. Right? There was really no other way. In fact, he hadn't gotten his snack. He probably, we do, do, we do do snacks most of the time. And so he probably did. And so I just was like, no, I'm not doing it. Sorry. No, no. And finally, I remember he just looked at me. He goes, but I'm hungry. Okay, buddy. Okay. Right? Because this is what happens whenever we're frustrated with a law. This is what happens whenever we're, 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 we don't love a rule. When you don't, any law, any rule that you don't like, it's because you don't believe the letter of the law and the spirit of the law match. You, you give me this law, but there's nothing really underneath it that I uh, believe in. This is why we get frustrated with that. Good laws, good rules is when the letter and the spirit match. And then we go, okay, I understand the why, I get it, let's move on. Now, there's also the possibility that we can obey the letter of the law without obeying the spirit of it. It is possible to obey the letter of the law, but not really obey the spirit behind it. My other daughter, Mia, when she was a toddler, she was good at this. Now, we used to live in Rochester, right in the village of Fairport, on a busy street, so Mia was not allowed to go out in our front yard by herself when she was two. We had a rule. Don't go out there. Now, one day we were heading out on vacation. And so my wife, Molly, she was running around packing up. And she wanted to prop that front door open so that she could get suitcases out to the car and things like this. But she knew our daughter. It's, it's, it's just coincidence that her name is Mia, M-I-A, because she knows our daughter. She knows that she, she will run if she sees an open door. So Molly knew I needed to prop the door. I don't want to worry about Mia. I need to focus on packing. So she laid down a law. Mia, stay on the porch. Letter of the law. Stay on the porch. Now the spirit behind that was I want to keep you safe, and I am doing other things right now to get us ready, and I cannot focus on keeping you safe. So here's the rule. Here's the law. Stay on the porch. Well, this is what my daughter did. This is what she decided to do. Right? The door is open. I'm not technically off the porch, right? But she, like, slowly kind of creeped her legs on the outside, just enough to just sort of say, yeah, yeah, I'm on the porch, Mom, but you still got to look for me, right? You still got to watch me. She was keeping the letter of the law, but she wasn't really keeping the spirit of the law. Molly still had to watch her like a hawk the entire time. She did it technically, or what probably a first century rabbi would say is that Mia fulfilled the letter of the law, but she abolished the spirit of it. She fulfilled the letter of the law. 
but she abolished the spirit of it. In fact, the Old Testament writers themselves recognized the distinction between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Even before Jesus, the Old Testament scriptures throughout recognized these two levels of law. Hosea 6, great passage. In Hosea 6, 6, it says this, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And when they say sacrifice here, they mean the sacrificial system. They mean the slaughtering of, of, of animals and going to the, the, the temple and doing all the rigmarole. Hosea is speaking. Say, I desire, he's speaking on behalf of God. For I desire, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, they were, they were strict laws. You needed to follow them. Hosea is not saying here to just abolish or get rid of the law. He's not saying, well, forget about the law. We don't need that anymore. He's saying, no, 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 but if, if you come with your sacrifices and your heart's not there, big deal. You can give me all the burnt offerings you want, but if you don't acknowledge me, if you don't acknowledge the Lord as you do it, what, what's the point here? And so the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' interpretation of the law. He's not interested in our technicalities or obligatory religiosity. He's interested in our hearts. That's the point. That's God's interpretation. That's Jesus' fulfillment of the law. That's how we were to understand it in order to live it out well. Remember those Ten Commandments that Moses came down on the mountain with, those two tablets in his hands? Jesus, in this sermon, the very next passage, is going to start addressing those, those, uh, those commandments one by one. He's going to start hitting them specifically one by one and saying, well, let's take a look here in Matthew 5, 21. The very first one, you've heard it said of old, of those of old, you shall not murder letter of the law. There's one, that's one of the Ten Commandments. It's Moses went up on his mountain and brought back the law. I'm going up on my mountain. Now I'm going to tell you what Moses said. This is what the law that God gave to Moses. You've heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder. Letter of the law, do not murder. But I tell you, and here comes the spirit behind it, I tell you that anyone, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Letter of the law. But I, I've come to fulfill it. You want to know how to follow the law? Live, by, live in the spirit of it. That's how you fulfill the whole law. The law and the prophets. Live by the spirit of your hand. Raise your hand. I'm going to ask you a question. Raise your hand if you've ever murdered anyone. No one? Raise your hand if you've ever harbored anger in your heart towards someone. Murderers. Murderers. I've come to fulfill the law. I'm not here to abolish it. I want you to keep it. And I want you to get the point of what this is all about. You didn't murder someone. Great. That's not what this is about, is it? This is about something bigger than that. Stay on the porch. And we with our feet dangling. I didn't murder anyone, God. <laughs> didn't murder anyone. And God goes, you're missing it. 
I've come to fulfill the law. I want you to live the best life you can. I've not come to abolish this. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to give you life and life to the full. Moses came with his tablets. That's good, but I, I want to show you a reason behind it. I don't desire your burnt sacrifices. I desire you to acknowledge God. I want you to live by the heart of this thing. I want you to fulfill. We fulfill the letter of the law, but we abolish the spirit of it. And this is Jesus' interpretation. This is his yoke. This is Jesus' yoke. Now, this is another Jewish idiom. If you were a disciple of a rabbi who accepted that rabbi's interpretation of scripture, you were said to have taken the yoke of that rabbi. So someone would ask, oh, uh, are you, you're a disciple. And the disciple would say, yeah, yeah, I've taken on the yoke of Rabbi Yeshua. I've, I've taken on the yoke of, of Jesus. I've, I've accepted his interpretation of the law, his fulfillment of the law as truth. I live by his yoke. This idea of yoke was enabled you to follow God's way. A lot of times people think, again, like the law, that a yoke is oppressive. It's something around your shoulders. It's something around your neck. It holds you down. But this was never the understanding of a yoke. A yoke was a tool to make things easier. If you're someone that had to carry water to a well, you sure is, you really, really, really were really happy that you had a yoke. It was meant to make the things that are heavy in life a little easier. That's what the law is. It's not restrictive. It doesn't hold you down. It's not oppressive. The law makes life easier. You take on the yoke of a rabbi so that you might walk a little easier as you carry the heavy load that you have. Jesus invites us to become his disciples, and he invites us to take on his yoke. You've probably already made the connection. Matthew 11, just a few more chapters later after his Sermon on the Mount, come to me, all you who are labor, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And why? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn my interpretation. Learn my fulfillment, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, in the Hebrew mind, easy and light did not mean simple. What Jesus is saying here is not, hey, accept my interpretation, and life's going to go really simple for you. Easy and light were never the, uh, the, a concept of simplicity. It was a concept of exhilaration. It's going to be hard. There will be work. Sometimes it's going to be excruciating to die to yourself, to live under this law. But it will be worth it. Oh, it will be worth it. His yoke is the very best way to live as we walk a heavy-laden life. Friends, Jesus goes on the mountainside to show us a better way. So let's reflect on that a little bit. Let's call the band up and we'll close out here. Friends, I'm tired. I'm tired. And friends, I'm tired of being angry. I'm tired of being angry at that person. It's a heavy burden. 
I've murdered enough people already. I'm labored and I'm heavy laden and I need rest. And so Jesus says, come. Come. Come to me, all you who are labored and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke. Learn from me. Understand what this whole thing is about. Understand the heart behind what we're trying to do here. Learn from me. Because, friends, our anger is killing us. Our anger is killing us. And our lust is killing us. He'll say this next. He'll talk about adultery next, another one of the Ten Commandments. Our lust is killing us. The things we run to, to medicate and mask everything that's going on, it's, it's killing us. And our pursuit of our rights, these rights we think we're owed, it's killing us. So Jesus will say, just a few verses later, hey, if someone hits you, strikes you on one cheek, you want to live in freedom? Let them hit your other cheek too. These things are killing us. And Jesus says, I want to show you a better way. You're killing them in your mind. And then they're killing you. Friends, I'm tired. And it's a hard road. It's hard. Oh, it's hard to lay down your life. It's hard to be a slave to Jesus. It's hard. But his way is easy. And he gives you rest. Rest for your souls. We're a lot like the kids sticking our legs out the front doors most of the time. We're going to mess this up. We're not going to do this perfect. Nobody believes that after today that we're going to do something perfect. And the scary thing is, is in our passage this morning, it says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, unless you do this perfectly, you certainly won't enter the kingdom of heaven, which for them meant a whole life that's lived now and in the one to come. We're never going to measure up to that. And so we're going to need someone else to do that perfectly for us. We're going to need the righteousness of another to get us to where we need to go. We need Jesus. And so what we do is we recognize that with communion. So if you have communion now, you can grab that. What communion says is, Jesus, you have asked us to trust you You've asked us to take your, your yoke upon us so that we wear your yoke and we live a life in freedom and joy, but we're going to mess this up, God. We're going to mess this up. And unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, we're going to stumble and fall. But Jesus, because you did it perfectly, your righteousness can become ours.
in the midst of our failures to live this out, as we struggle and limp, as we attempt to do this well, that your righteousness will cover that up. So Jesus took bread, gave thanks for it, gave it to disciples, said, eat all this. This is the body. This is my body, broken for you. And all the ways that you will abolish this law as you attempt to fulfill it, this is for you. Let's take it. And after the supper was over, Jesus took the cup, gave thanks to it, said, this is my blood of the new covenant, a fulfilled law, one that gets at the heart. I want you to join me in it. And this is just like a glimpse of what the party's going to be like someday when all your heavy burdens get laid down. But until then, let's remember what's to come, the cup. Jesus, we are a people that don't get it. That break your law again and again and again. We abolish it over and over and over. And yet you say, come again. Come, come. All you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. May we today, this day, trust and live your fulfilled law, the spirit of the law. Lord, if there are people in here that we need to make right, you say in your scripture, you say in the next verses, Lord, go to them for your next gift, for your next offering, go to them. Lord, if there's something we need to lay down, if there's a right we need to lay down, if there's an issue we need to make right, if there's a word that needs to be spoken, may we live into your law today. We love you, Jesus.